This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome. Today uh, we're going to talk about, I think, an important public health problem. It's not common that that me as a surgeon and my partner uh, get to talk about things that really have a, a real public health impact, but I think hip fractures are certainly one of them um, that we take care of frequently as orthopedic surgeons. Um, my name is Sam Morshed, um, and my partner in the back of the room there, Dr. Tugood, um, we're going to be talking to uh, about the growing epidemic. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about epidemiology or the kind of the distribution of this of this problem and uh, and Paul is going to talk a little bit more about the nuts and bolts of how we treat these problems orthopedically um, again by show of hands how many people out there have either had a hip fracture or know somebody who's had a hip fracture yeah I mean pretty much everybody in the room so this is this is super common okay all right so as I mentioned, I'm going to be talking about the epidemiology or the kind of the distribution of this uh, of this problem in the in the population. Um, I uh, I'm an orthopedic trauma surgeon by training. That means I uh, I'm an orthopedic surgeon that uh, did additional training um, to specialize in fracture care or uh, the treatment of broken bones. And uh, my partner, Dr. Tugut, has a similar training. Um, he also did some additional training in arthroplasty or joint replacement. So he's particularly well qualified to talk about some of the treatments that he's going to be um, uh, talking to you about later. So in the, next, uh, in the next 15 minutes or so, we're going to talk a little bit about the, the frequency of this injury or its distribution, again, in the population. We'll talk very briefly about available treatments and talk a little bit about expected outcomes. All right. Again, my goal is to really, if you're not already impressed by the, by the prevalence of hip fracture in, 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 in our communities, I hope, to, I hope to give you that sense by the end of this talk. Um, so the frequency of fragility fractures is rising with the aging population. And here I have uh, three of the most common fragility fractures. And I know if you've attended other talks within this, within this sequence on, uh, on fragility fractures, you're, you, you, you may be familiar with some of these uh, data. And we talk about uh, vertebral fractures, compression fractures of the spine, um, hip fractures, and wrist fractures here. And what you have uh, here is kind of the prevalence of each of the, these kinds of injuries within the population. And what we see now as the baby boomer generation ages is that this shaded cohort here is basically marching forward in time, okay? So it's not that it's not that the risk within any given age group is increasing for these problems. In fact, I would argue, I won't get into this, but in some cases, um, with better prevention, those numbers are actually decreasing within any age group. However, this overwhelming group of patients or this cohort of patients that's moving forward in time, the baby boomers, um, moving into those older age groups means that we are going to in turn have a larger number of these problems. We're going to be dealing with them in, uh, in orthopedics and in all of medicine. I think that fragility fractures are definitely something that are very much on the rise. So 
women are twice as likely after the age of 65 to, uh, to, to sustain a hip fracture as are, um, as are men or their male counterparts. Um, they account for um, over 300,000 hospitalizations per year. And this is really not just a, a U.S. population problem. This is a problem of real global public health um, importance. We see that in 1990, we had about a, a 1.6 million hip fractures a year, and we're looking at a, almost a five-fold increase in that number um, uh, estimated by 2050. So as, as, other, as, as, as other populations around the world have the opportunity to grow older, right? This is what we call the epidemiological transition. Um, as folks survive longer, they're less likely to succumb to uh, uh, death earlier in life. They grow older, and they, in turn, um, are going to uh, see some of the same public health problems that we see aging in this country and other developed countries. This currently accounts for about $9 billion in health care expenditure a year. So, uh, again, a whopping, uh, a whopping uh, uh, part of our uh, health care expenditures in this country are actually um, accounted for in caring for hip fractures and complications associated with hip fractures. Okay. So what is the outcome after surgery? This is maybe the, 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 the saddest slide in my, uh, in my short slide deck this evening. Um, so mortality is really high. Um, it's been reported after a hip fracture uh, uh, to be anywhere uh, up to 10% within 30 days. A lot of those actually happen in the hospital, in their initial hospitalization, um, and is as high as 35% at up to one year. So what we see with, with hip fractures, we often think of hip fractures as the sign of a, of a failing organism. So hip fractures don't happen out of the blue. They're often happening in folks whose health is otherwise failing for other reasons. Um, and that's why these numbers are so high. It's not like a hip fracture kills you straight away. It, it, it can lead to complications like pneumonias and bed sores and blood clots that, uh, that end up uh, 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 leading to, uh, to complications that, that, uh, that, that kill people. But they are also highly associated with other problems that may have been comorbid or happening at the same time that somebody had their hip fracture. The morbidity is also incredibly, incredibly high. And uh, does everybody is everybody familiar with the difference between mor mortality and morbidity? Morbidity is just bad stuff that happens that's not necessarily death. Um, so, 11% uh, of patients become outright bedridden. They never never get up and walk again after a hip fracture, despite a lot of the great treatments that Dr. Tugut's going to talk to you about in a little bit. 16% um, uh, of patients end up in long-term treatment facilities. So they never go home. And over half of patients lose their independence. Right? And that's pretty bad, too. I mean, nobody wants to become dependent on other people. Over half of patients after a hip fracture lose that independence. Um, so this is a real, real serious problem. We have to do better. So tonight, again, I, as I mentioned, we're going to talk about a couple of different types of hip fractures. And Dr. Tugut, again, is going to explain that not 
not you know not every hip fracture is the same. There are, there there's some nuance in 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 how uh, in how we think about hip fractures as orthopedic surgeons, and that has some determination uh, as to the treatment that patients are going to get after surgery. Right, um, we think about femoral neck fractures or the more proximal fractures is often going on to get some form of a joint replacement, whereas those that happen a little bit further down the femur as being uh, amenable to fixation okay now other than other than all of the fancy surgery that you're going to learn about here in a little bit. I think it's important to talk about a few developments um, uh, that, we, uh, that we have found seem to be uh, at least scratching the surface of making outcomes a little bit better um, than they have been at the past. One is prompt surgery. I think it's now really unequivocally shown that earlier surgery is better surgery. And so a lot of hospitals in the community, including UCSF Medical Center um, have uh, have have made some major programmatic shifts um, to really get patients to surgery a lot earlier, ideally within 24 hours. Okay, that's really our our benchmark here. Is we try to get somebody who is admitted to the hospital through admission through the preoperative workup, if they need to see medicine, if they need to see the cardiologist, that all of that stuff happens very quickly so that we can get surgery to happen sooner because that has been shown time and time again in many studies, not just in North America, but in Europe and around the world, to really lead to better outcomes for patients. Okay, um, Anesthesia. So uh, there are problems with general anesthesia, especially in older patients, patients who may be uh, predisposed to dementia and other, uh, uh, other uh, uh, complications um, like delirium after surgery. And we found that um, more localized uh, uh, anesthesia, we call it neuraxial anesthesia, spinal anesthetics, epidural anesthetics that don't require us to completely put somebody to sleep and put a tube down their throat to have a machine breathe for them during surgery, that that seems to have uh, an impact on uh, on uh, reducing complications after surgery. Um, there are other regional anesthetics, so not even going to the spine, but working on the peripheral nerves. Um, that that can really improve uh, the hospital course and potentially impact. Um, our patients. We know that it reduces acute pain. And what's the importance of reducing acute pain? Well, it's terrible to just let people be in pain, and so that we always want to try to prevent that. Um, but by doing that and reducing the amount of narcotic medications that we have to give patients, that also reduces the chance that patients become delirious or have other cognitive problems, or maybe even down the line become uh, narcotic dependent. So really reducing pain early on really seems to have an important impact on how these patients do, right? And it may, as I said, it may even impact their long-term uh, function and quality of life and even mortality. Okay, so some other standards of treatment, and these are maybe not so you know not so fancy, but really are are kind of the mainstays of treatment. Um, if you or somebody you know ends up having a hip fracture, we really uh, we really work hard to get patients um, into uh, in back either uh, back into one of our skeletal health clinics here, which you'll hear about in one of the other modules within this curriculum that we have um, to. 
get patients at least on calcium and vitamin D supplementation. A lot of patients may benefit from bisphosphonate medications like lendronate or zoledronic acid. Um, and there are a number of newer agents out there, Prolia and Forteo, um, that also really have the uh, potential to, um, to not only build you know, build back uh, healthy bone, but also maybe even speed up the recovery. Um, so those are really important. And then certainly um, the rehabilitation process is, is really a mainstay of treatment. We need to build back strength. One of the best predictors of physical function in patients after hip fracture is actually walking speed. So we want to get people strong. We want to build back their balance, and we want to get them to walk as soon as possible. Okay, And this is really what sets hip fractures apart from spinal fractures and hip fractures and shoulder fractures and some of the other important fragility fractures is that hip fractures lead to a loss of the ability to walk. And that is a death sentence. Right? If people aren't walking, they're not going to do well for very long. And that's really, that's really why surgery, while it's an option for some of those other fractures that I talk about, is really the mainstay of treatment for anything but just absolutely the most sick and bedridden patients um, uh, when, they, when they sustain those injuries. So in conclusion, and this is a short talk, um, Hip fractures will affect you, your friends, and your family, and I suspect that that's why a lot of you all are here this evening. Um, surgical care is very, very effective in restoring morbidity, um, or mobility. However, it does not necessarily um, mean that there's no morbidity or mortality associated with this condition. And a lot of those numbers that I gave you earlier, the you know 20 to 30 percent one-year mortality, these are still things that we haven't really been able to move the needle on. Um, and I think that it's, you know, it's so it's not just going to be an orthopedic surgeon that is, is affecting those outcomes, but really a multidisciplinary team. And that's really what we're moving into is the age of multidisciplinary care for, uh, for these conditions. And optimal care, again, combines timely anesthesia and surgical care, medical management of osteoporosis, and rehabilitation. Okay? So... I'm gonna I'm gonna take a few minutes to take questions just because that's a pretty short talk and you've got a longer one coming here and I want to make sure that any questions related to this aren't forgotten as you guys are dazzled by Dr. Tugud's talk. Yes, the question is: Do breaks to the pelvis count as hip fractures? Yeah, they do. They're thrown into the same bucket, and I think Dr. Tugud's going to get into some of the nuance of different types of hip fractures. Just to answer your question briefly, yeah, anything from the pelvis to the hip socket, or what we call the acetabulum, to the proximal femur, all of those are thrown in the same bin as hip fractures. Yeah, and you'll learn more about that. So stay tuned. Yes. Yeah. So um, the question is, do orthotics and prosthetics have a role in the management of, of hip fractures? Is that, is that correct? So uh, orthotics and prosthetics, I, I think it's important to understand the, the, the nomenclature there a little bit. So typically what we think about, we, when we talk about prosthetics, we're talking about things that take the place of a missing part, right? So those can be prosthetic 
uh, limbs, right? So somebody loses their arm or loses a leg, they get a device put on them that simulates the function or helps them function in a way as though they still had that uh, that limb. Um, well, prosthetic joints is something that you're going to learn about in, in, brief, in, a, in a brief moment, and absolutely, those have a very important role. Now, those are not devices that are attached on the outside of the body. They're actually something that goes inside the body, and again, you'll learn more about those in a moment. Orthotic devices are something that are that, that tend to kind of supplement the parts that we already have. So how many people have orthotics in their shoes? Yeah, well, a whole bunch of people, right? So an orthotic can be a, 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 a heel lift. It can be a, a device that helps accommodate a, you know, a problem with the, the morphology of your foot. Um, an orthotic can be a brace, Right, so we have different types of braces. Sometimes you see people wearing ankle braces. Right, you've watched Steph, Steph Curry, you know, out there, and he's got ankle braces underneath those orange shoes of his. Um, and uh, those are, you know, those are another type of uh, orthotic. So they tend to be on the outside of the body. Um, we don't use those so much um, in in patients who have hip fractures per se. So they have less of a role for this particular problem. Any other questions? Yes. Great, great question. Yeah, is there, the question is, is there, is there a detriment to recovering um, and ending up using a walker uh, for a prolonged period of time? Does that cause a problem necessarily? Um, and it, I, I think it's a really good question because, of course, what we'd love is for, you know, for folks to just get up and start, you know, start getting out, up and about without the need of any sort of assistive device. But we have to balance that with some of the, the problems with walking unassisted, right? The person may have had a balance issue before that led them to fall. And so the last thing you want is somebody recovering, gets out of the hospital and begins this recovery process and falls again. Uh, and so I think that uh, most of us, while we really want to do everything we can to restore strength, even improve strength, improve balance, um, and get people walking, um, we're, we're really reticent to recommend that, that they that they get off of the use of an assistive device in an overly, you know, overly hasty manner, right? If, and one of the biggest predictors of needing a walker afterwards is obviously having been on a walker before, before surgery. So I guess my answer to you would be that if she's 90 and she can, you know, she can get around with a walker and that's a good way for her to make give her confidence and feel like she has balance, it's a heck of a lot better to give her that walker and get her up than to have her not, you, you know, have her fearful of falling and not walking. Any other questions? Okay. As, as you listen for the next, you know, half hour, 45 minutes, if you have more questions, write them down. Uh, I'm sure other questions will come up and we'll have some more time for questions at the end. So it's, it's uh, a pleasure for me now to introduce my, uh, my partner, Dr. Paul Tugood, um, who's going to talk to us a little bit about fixation strategies um, for, um, for, uh, for hip fractures. I can get you set up here, Paul. Okay, take it away. All right, thanks, sir. <clears throat> All right, well, good evening, everyone. Again, I'm Paul Tugood. 
I am uh, one of the orthopedic surgeons at uh, UCSF, and I spend a lot of time at Zuckerberg, San Francisco General Hospital as well, both of us do. Uh, and so I've been charged with talking with you guys about, uh, as Dr. Morshed said, the nuts and bolts of how we actually fix these problems. Um, and specifically, uh, I'm going to try to to discuss with you guys when we decide to fix them, meaning put the bones back together and try to get them to heal, and when we decide to do a arthroplasty or put in an, an internal prosthesis, which was a question that was already asked. So I don't have any disclosures. I don't benefit in any way from speaking with you tonight other than enjoying all your smiling faces. And this is uh, what I'm going to speak to you about. So I'm going to talk to you about what a hip fracture is, okay? And then I'm, I'm going to talk to you about why we fix them, that's been touched on a little bit by Dr. Morshed already, how we fix them, how we choose from the tools that are in the toolbox, uh, and then lastly I'll touch again on the outcomes, uh, and unfortunately I'll paint a similarly drab picture that was uh, already painted by uh, my senior colleague here. So um, the reason I got into orthopedic surgery was because I was interested in anatomy, and so I thought that would be a good place to start. Okay, so I'm going to use uh, hopefully the mouse as a pointer. Is that showing up? Yeah, great. Okay, um, so uh, to your right-hand side there is a, a picture of the pelvis uh, and uh, the two femur bones. Okay, so the pelvis is actually made up of three bones. There's this unique bone here in the midline called the sacrum. And the sacrum uh, is unique because it's the bottom portion of the spine. It's a, a fused collection of the lowest bones in the bottom of the spine. And it also makes up... Uh, the pel uh, an important portion of the pelvic ring, as we call it. So the, the pelvic ring is kind of like a, a pretzel, uh, a ring uh, made by a series of three bones. You have the midline sacrum, you have uh, what we call the innominate bone uh, on either side, and they join together at the pubic symphysis in the front, as well as the sacroiliac joints in the back. And this makes up the, the pelvic ring. And uh, the function of the pelvic ring is many, but its primary function, I would argue, is to transfer weight okay, from the spinal column down to your lower extremities, okay? And this is done at the hip, okay? The reason you guys are all here this evening. And the hip uh, really is a very simple structure. Um, it's what we call a ball and socket joint, okay? So um, the, uh, the cup here, okay, is called the acetabulum. And again, that's a portion of the pelvic bone. And that's just the cup, the shell. And then there's a sphere that goes inside that, and we call that the femoral head, and that's at the very top of the femur. And it's, it's literally just a sphere uh, that fits into this shell. And it has a, uh, a significant uh, amount of motion uh, in all planes because, again, there's a ball in a socket, and it can move uh, in all planes. Okay? So that's the basics of the anatomy. Now we're going to make it more complicated. So, you know, uh, we'll start with the hip. Okay, um, and specifically by that I mean the femur, sorry, the femur. Uh, and, you know, the, the proximal or the top part of the femur is a pretty small place. It's only a couple of inches uh, in size. Uh, and yet, uh, if you got a fracture in any one of these places I'm about to bring up now, the management and the nomenclature surrounding these areas is very different. So if I called up Dr. Morshed and said, Sam, I've got a patient with a hip fracture for you tomorrow, that would give him absolutely no information whatsoever uh, in terms of what he needs to know to prepare for the surgery. Okay, because if it's a femoral head fracture, that's a totally different animal from a fracture that's in the femoral neck, which is that second line down. Okay, 
the next line down is called the intertrochanteric region of the femur. So that's between two bumps on the femur. There's a big one to your right and a smaller one to your left, called the greater and lesser trochanter, respectively. Turns out if you fracture between those two areas, it's totally different than if you fracture in the two areas above. Okay. Similarly, that next line down in what we call the subtrochanteric region of the femur, the area below the trochanter is where you're getting towards the shaft of the femur. That's a totally different animal uh, than if uh, you broke in the intertrochanteric, the femoral neck, or the femoral head regions of the proximal femur. Okay. Turns out, though, that even if I told Dr. Morshed I've got a femoral neck fracture or I've got a subtrochanteric fracture, even that is not going to be enough for him to decide what he needs to do to get the patient cared for appropriately, okay? So we love to classify things in orthopedics, so I'm going to show you a bunch of classifications, and the, the point of this is not for you to memorize that, okay? We're, we, we spent our whole lives memorizing this stuff, so we know how to treat hip fractures, okay? But just to give you a flavor of what goes through our minds, okay? So, uh, for example, for femoral head fractures, fractures that occur in the ball, in the sphere at the top of the hip. We subclassify these things, okay? And we classify them into Pipkin 1, 2, 3, 4, based off of some guy who originally came up with the classification system that stuck, okay? And again, just like there's a difference between treating a femoral head fracture and treating an intertrochanteric femur fracture, there's a big difference between treating a Pipkin 1 and a Pipkin 2 and a Pipkin 3 and a Pipkin 4. The surgical approach you might take uh, will differ. The implants that you're going to need in the room is going to differ. The prognosis for the patient is going to differ. So all of these things are, are very important, even though uh, they may seem at first glance like minor details. Okay? Similarly, when you march on down uh, the femur and you go from the femoral head to the femoral neck, we've got a bunch of ways to classify this as well. Okay, so depending on uh, whether uh, the fracture line occurs close to the head, we call that basy cervical or away from the head. Uh, sorry, close to the head is subcapital, and then uh, away from the uh, head is basy cervical. Okay, uh, that has a uh, different prognosis and may lead to different treatment strategies. Okay, we also can classify the level of displacement with that second classification down, called the garden classification, and then further down we can classify the angle of the fracture. Okay, and again, all these classifications may feed into a surgeon's um, uh, plan uh, for the patient going to the operating room. Okay. Similarly, marching down the femur, the intertrochanteric region. So this is the region between the two lumps on the femur. The big one uh, up by the head is called the greater, and the smaller one uh, is called the lesser. That, that region of the femur can break in a number of ways. I've really simplified it here. But you can have a fracture that goes directly in between them, and we call that normal obliquity, or you can have a fracture that goes in the opposite direction, and we call that a reverse obliquity femur, uh, intertrochanteric femur fracture. Again, that can profoundly uh, affect the implant that you might want in the room. Okay. And then finally, subtrochanteric femur fractures. Again, we can classify this uh, into a couple of different categories. And again, this may affect a surgeon's approach. All right. And that's just for the femur. Okay. It's even worse when you get to the acetabulum. Okay. And both me and Dr. Morshed went to a trauma fellowship specifically to figure out how to solve this problem. Okay. But on the other side, the hip socket. Okay. There were some smart guys in France who subclassified uh, hip socket fractures, acetabular fractures, into 10 different types. Okay? And again, depending on which type, you may choose a different approach uh, or you may choose different implants. Okay? And so, again, the, the purpose of me going through all this is not for you to memorize this, okay? because that's our job. Okay? But 
it's to get to this slide here. So what's a hip fracture? Well, a hip fracture is not really a great term, okay, only because it's imprecise. Okay, a hip, a hip fracture does not describe anything meaningful really to a surgeon, okay, because it's really a large group of diagnoses, and each one of these diagnoses has their own natural history, their own surgical treatments, and their own prognoses, okay? So now we're going to talk about why we fix it. Okay, now interestingly, I just tried to confuse you with a lot of information uh, about what these things are. But believe it or not, the treatments all boil down to a very small number of things that are digestible, even to people who aren't orthopedic surgeons. Okay, so there's really only two reasons that we try to fix hip fractures, the why, and this was already touched on by Dr. Morshed, and that is to improve people's quantity of life and quality of life. By quantity of life, I mean avoiding death. Okay, to be very specific. Uh, my numbers were, are pretty similar to the one Dr. Marchet already put up. So if we do not fix a hip fracture, mortality rates are extremely high. Okay, And it's not even uh, very easy to find data like this anymore, um, fortunately, because we don't treat a lot of these non-operatively. Okay. Um, yeah, this is, again, some old data I found, I think, from the 60s or 70s, but just to scare you. Um, but this is probably not grossly inaccurate. If you, if you treat hip fractures non-operatively, mortality rates are very high. Whether I would have put 50%, 60%, 80%, you probably would have been disappointed with that. Okay? Even if you do fix them, the mortality rate is still probably 30% okay, at a year. All right, which is still better, uh, obviously, than non-operative treatments. But uh, even today, uh, with, with the best medical and operative management available, uh, mortality rates with hip fractures are still high. But I think we'd all agree that 30% at one year is better than 50, 60, 70, 80% at a couple of months. Okay? And it's just as Dr. Morshed said earlier, the hip fracture doesn't kill you. Okay? So if you get a heart attack, you can die from the heart attack. If you have a stroke, you can die from the stroke. Okay? A hip fracture itself does not cause cardiac arrest and you just stop breathing, but the complications and the comorbidities that these people carry with them is what can lead to a early demise. Okay, and I've listed uh, a couple of these complications here, and all of them come down to uh, not mobilizing a fragile person. Okay, so if you take an 85 or 90-year-old person and leave them in bed for six weeks, very few of them will be able to get out of bed afterwards. Okay, so it's it's immobilization uh, and the uh, the side effects, the complications of immobilization uh, that lead to mortality. So that's the first why we fix these things to try to preserve people's life as long as we can. And the other thing is quality of life. So not only would it be nice if you were alive, but it would be nice if you got back to doing some of the things you were doing before. Uh, and so this is a common series of acronyms that we use in orthopedics, and it just means to get people out of bed, weight-bearing as tolerated. Okay, That's the real goal of this surgery. Okay, So regardless of all those classifications I showed you earlier that was meant to dazzle and confuse you, this is really the goal of any surgery that we do, is to try to get people out of bed, putting weight on their leg, and walking, as Dr. Moore should emphasize. So the, the, the treatment algorithms all, all converge on this point. Okay? So again, whether you have this problem, which is a transcervical displaced femoral neck fracture and you get a total hip, or you have this problem, which is a normal ubiquity intertrochanteric hip fracture, and you get this solution to the problem, or you have a atypical bisphosphonate-related subtrochanteric femur fracture and you get this device put in, the real goal of any of these is the same, okay? It's to take this person and change them into that person. 
okay? The person who's up and walking and still participating in life, cognitively normal, okay? And very rarely will that be the case if a hip fracture is not treated surgically. Okay. They are not. These are two random internet images. Okay. <laughs> I wish I was that good. No. Okay, so that's, that's why we hip, fix hip fractures. We fix hip fractures to get people up and out of bed to maintain their quality and quantity of life. Okay? So how do we fix them? So just like there's a million classifications, the, the details of this is not something I can really go over. But fortunately, uh, you can simplify this uh, basically into two buckets. Okay, You can either do internal fixation. Okay, You can do an operation called an open reduction and internal fixation, ORIF, which is what I spend the bulk of most days doing. Or you can do an arthroplasty procedure, which is just a fancy term for replacing the joint. Okay, So I'm going to delve into what each one of these really is. Okay, so if you can't tell, the yellow thing is a proximal femur, okay, made on PowerPoint. And I'm going to break the proximal femur, okay, you see that? We're all following along, so I've broken it up into two pieces, okay? So now I have a fracture, and I'm going to try to fix it with internal fixation. So what are the steps here? Well, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to put the bones back where they belong, okay? You don't want to just fix them randomly in space, you want to get them back to where they belong. And that sounds obvious, but it can be extremely difficult, trust me. Uh, and this is what we spend a lot of our surgical time doing, is trying to get these things appropriately reduced. Unfortunately, after you get it reduced, it's still broken, okay? It hasn't healed spontaneously, and so what we need to do is we need to put something in there that will hold it in this reduced position until we get union, okay? And that's the internal fixation part. So open reduction is what I just showed you. Internal fixation is something like this, okay? This is a bad diagram of something called the sliding hip screw, okay? But it's a metal plate that has a screw that goes up across the fracture, okay? And the goal of this device is to act as an internal splint, okay, while your body heals around the device, okay? So this device is not meant to last forever, it's meant to last until those two bones knit back together, okay? And that's why the points, uh, the third series of points there is important. We try to limit the soft tissue damage. We try to limit the damage to the blood supply uh, to the bones that need to heal because we want union. We want the bones to, to heal together and unite because if we don't, you can have a problem like this where the implant will break. Again, this, this implant is not meant to last the life of the patient. It's meant to last the series of weeks or months that are required for the bones to knit back together. Okay? So that's an open reduction and internal fixation. Okay? You have a broken bone. You put the pieces back together. You hold it with an internal device until the body heals. Okay? So that's option one. Option, oh, and then I'm now, I'll dazzle you with a couple of specifics, okay? So these are all examples of internal fixation, okay? You can put in screws, you can put in that screw and side plate, you can put in what's called an intramedullary nail. These are all internal fixation devices that work the way that I just described. And the same is true on the cup side, the acetabular side. This is the very first acetabular fracture I ever took care of. Okay, and uh, I fixed it the same way. Now, granted, the details of what I did are very different. Okay, but fundamentally what I did is I put the pieces back together. I put a bunch of metal in there to hold it in place. And then hopefully this gentleman went on to a uneventful union where the bones knitted back together and that hardware is just sitting in there doing nothing. This guy actually followed up with my mentors from fellowship, so hopefully he did heal. <laughs> I'm sure they would have let me know if he didn't. 
Uh, okay, so that's option one, open reduction trail fixation. Option two is an arthroplasty, and again, this is a joint replacement. Okay, so we're going to start with the same poorly drawn yellow femur. Okay, and I'm going to break the poorly drawn yellow femur again. Okay, now in an arthroplasty, my goal is not to get the bone back together and have it to heal. Actually, the very first thing I do once I get in there is I take the broken bit and I put it in the garbage. Okay, I say, I'm done with this thing, I can't put it back together, and I toss it. And so then, the goal of the surgery is not to get anything to heal, but it's to put an implant in that looks kind of like the patient's native anatomy and get that implant to work long-term for a person, for that person's lifespan, okay? And so for, in order for that to work, you need to have materials in that implant that uh, will last a lifetime, okay? Uh, and you also need the bone to stick to the implant, and initially, for the first couple of weeks, that's done just by um, geometry, meaning that I cut a channel in the femur such that when I put that implant in, it will wedge in there and not want to move. Long term, that's not a good solution. That'll only work for a couple of weeks. Long term, what'll happen is there's a porous surface on that implant, and the bone will actually grow onto the implant or into the implant sometimes, and that will act as the permanent lock between the bone and the arthroplasty device, okay? And once that happens, that implant should last essentially for the patient's lifespan, okay? So very different goals. The goal is not to get bony healing, the goal is to restore the patient's biomechanics, as we call it, with an implant, for that implant to have bone grow onto it and for this implant to last someone's lifespan, okay? And there's sort of two versions around the hip for this. One is called a hemiarthroplasty, and the other one's called a total hip arthroplasty. So the one over here is a hemiarthroplasty, and all that means is half an arthroplasty, okay? So specifically, it's the femur half, okay? You can see there's a stem down the femur, there's a ball at the top, but nothing's been done to the patient's native acetabulum. That's still their acetabulum. We just did half of a hip replacement. Alternatively, you can do what's called a total hip replacement. This was originally designed for arthritis. However, it can also be done for fracture surgery. And you can put a cup on the pelvis side to mate with the other half of the arthroplasty and the stem that goes down the femur with a ball at the top. Okay, and that recreates the patient's biomechanics. Okay, so those are the two versions uh, of arthroplasty that are available to us. Okay, so those are the two tools, okay? When you simplify it, um, th that's what we have in our toolbox. We have open reduction internal fixation and getting the bones to heal, or we have put the broken piece in the garbage and do an arthroplasty, a joint replacement, with no goals of healing and instead goals of a uh, stable implant uh, in the patient's anatomy, okay, in the patient's femur. So now, how do we make that choice, okay? And it turns out this also is relatively simple, okay? Although the details of the surgery can be technically complicated, there's really only a couple things, really, that make us uh, uh, go one way or the other. Uh, the first variable is the potential for fracture healing. So do we think that this is going to unite over time, or do we think it's unlikely to unite over time, the bones coming together? And the second thing is, is there a procedure out there, particularly in an elderly patient, that will allow the patient to weight bear immediately? Okay, that's our second goal. So now we'll go through some examples. All right, so this is example number one. So this is a 22-year-old M, male. He was in a MCA, that's a motorcycle accident, and he presents with a Pipkin II femoral head fracture. Okay, and this is obviously a schematic of what that might look like. Okay, 
So in a 22-year-old male, potential for, ha- for fracture healing. There, there is some potential for fracture healing in a 22-year-old male. Okay, this is a particularly bad injury, actually, but there's some potential for fracture healing that we're going to want to try to save this in a young individual. Okay? Also, this patient doesn't have very many weight-bearing needs. Most 22-year-olds can manage for several weeks or months on crutches. Okay? Uh, and so because of that, Dr. Morshed is going to perform an open reduction in internal fixation. So you can see we've lined the bony pieces back up, we've put some screws in there, and we're hoping that this is going to heal. Okay? Now I'm going to give you the exact same injury. The only thing I did was I changed who it happened to and how it happened. So it's no longer a 22-year-old falling off a motorcycle. It's an 89-year-old uh, male who had a GLF, a ground-level fall. Okay, So he got his foot caught on the carpet at home and fell. Okay, And he had the exact same injury. Okay, Unfortunately, in this gentleman, the potential for fracture healing with fixation is remote. Okay. And also, if I did fix the fracture and asked him to be on crutches for three months, the chances of him being able to do that and tolerate that is also remote. Okay? And so because of that, I, we don't fix this, we replace this. Okay? Because with this operation, he can put full weight on the, on the hip right away, get up out of bed the next day. Okay? Go through a couple more examples. So this is a 22-year-old male motorcycle accident. It's going to be very familiar after a while who presents with a inner trochanteric hip fracture. So the region that's between the greater and lesser trochanter where that red line is, okay? Potential for healing in this area of the body, excellent, okay? And do I have an operation where I can fix this and the patient can wait very immediately? Yes, I do, okay? I have this operation. Again, the details don't really matter. But the point is he can heal this and he can wait bear on this implant with this fracture immediately, okay? And most of the time go on to an uneventful union. So I'm going to fix this. Now, again, all I've done here is I've changed who it is. So it's no longer a 22-year-old on a motorcycle. It's the 89-year-old person with the GLF, the ground-level fall, and they have an intertrochanteric hip fracture. Okay? And as opposed to the last example, and this example actually still in an 89-year-old person, the potential for fracture healing in this area of the body is excellent. Okay? And I have an operation where if I fix it and ask the bone to heal, they can wait bare immediately. I don't have to have them on crutches without putting weight on the leg. Okay? Okay? So because of that, they get the same operation as the 22-year-old. Okay? Just by asking the same two questions. A couple more examples. So now we have a 65-year-old male with a ground-level fall who has this, a completely displaced what we call a garden four femoral neck fracture. Okay? And he's 65. The potential for fracture healing here, again, is poor. All right? If I put those pieces back together and ask internal fixation to hold it until it heals, chances of that working aren't great. Okay? And I also uh, have an operation where if I perform an arthroplasty, this patient will be able to weight bear immediately. Okay? And so this person would get a total hip arthroplasty. Okay? So now what's going to change is the age. So let's say we have the same injury in an 89-year-old demented male. This person, again, potential for fracture healing is poor. Need for immediate weight-bearing is significant. Okay, And so this person is going to get a, hemi, a hemiarthroplasty, okay? so, which gives me the opportunity to explain why you do one versus the other. Okay? So a complete hip replacement, a total hip replacement versus a hemiarthroplasty where you just replace the top of the femur. The two essential differences are as follows. The size of the femoral head that you can put in a native acetabulum is larger than if you have to put a cup in first and then 
ephemeral head, okay? Because the cup itself has mass, it takes up space. So the size of the femoral head, if you compare the, oops, compare these two, you compare that femoral head there, the ball, to that one there, you'll notice this one's significantly larger. As it turns out, that makes for a much more stable hip. It's less likely to dislocate. And so an 89-year-old demented person who can't follow instructions, the less likely to dislocate implant is probably the safer choice. In the 65-year-old active person, it may not be as good a choice because this metal ball is rubbing against that patient's native cartilage, okay, which obviously is not normal, and that can cause pain and a lower level of functioning long-term. So in a healthy 65-year-old person who we expect to have a long life expectancy, we might go with a complete hip replacement. Okay? That's the fundamental decision point there. Okay. Uh, and I think we're getting close to my final example here. So we're back to the 22-year-old guy who falls off the motorcycle. Okay, he gets one of the 10 types of acetabular fractures. This is called an associated both column. Okay, and potential for fracture healing in the pelvis like this is excellent. Okay, this guy can walk around with crutches and not put weight on it for three months, no problem. And so he gets fixed. Okay, same injury, but now it's a 79-year-old person after a ground-level fall. Again, potential for fracture healing is excellent. However, they're going to have difficulty not putting weight on this for three months. Unfortunately, they still get the same operation. Okay? And the, the reason I put this up here is to demonstrate that we don't have a silver bullet for everything. Okay? A lot of hip fractures that we treat, we can have people be weight bearings tolerated right away. However, that's not always the case. And there's a growing number of uh, patients with these sort of problems uh, who have uh, injuries into joints that we're going to fix that may not be able to have a prolonged period of non-weight bearing. We're still developing the sort of evidence for what to do for these cases. Okay? Sometimes arthroplasty may be a better option uh, in these cases. You have a question? I all of your examples are men. Do <laughs> not break their hips? No, no. Women break their hips more often. It's just when you copy and paste, it always ends up as a man. Uh, I only change the age and the injury each, each time, so that is the only reason uh, it's, it's a mess. Is there a difference, like, women take calcium, are there both more pores or less pores, or is there a difference between the bones of men, older men and older women? Yeah, so just to repeat the question uh, for our people watching the video. So uh, the question is, is there a difference between uh, bone quality in men and women? The answer to that is yes. So after menopause, women lose bone density at a significantly faster rate uh, than men. Uh, and it is part of the reason that women have more hip fractures and fragility fractures. The other reason is that uh, you guys outlive us. Uh, and so you have a longer opportunity to have these problems. Okay. Uh, yeah, question? Yeah, so just to repeat the question again, so the question is, is stem cell therapy at all applicable in, in these scenarios? So uh, what I would say is it's not something we typically employ in 2018, okay? There are cases where we use stem cells or um, molecular mechanisms to try to get fractures to heal. Uh, the indications for that contemporarily are relatively narrow. Uh, it tends to be bones that are having trouble healing, what we call non-unions. Um, uh, but... Um, uh, again, it's 2018. Uh, it's quite possible that in 2078, we will be frequently injecting something into joints to get cartilage to heal and to get bone to heal, but we're just, we're not there yet. So what I've shown you tonight is more or less the standard of care today, which is if you're going to try to get something to heal, to line the bone back up and let the body do the work. Okay. And then, uh, 
just to quickly move on to, I think, my last uh, series of depressing slides. So what are the outcomes? Okay. So uh, unfortunately, even with uh, a quick trip to, trip to the operating room, everything goes perfectly. The rate of complications is high. Okay, And I can't just pick one number uh, for all these complications because, again, that's a big difference between fixing an acetabular fracture and fixing a femoral neck fracture. So these are all sort of lumped together. But just to give you a flavor for it, so there's something called heterotopic ossification. So this is when bone forms in places that we didn't intend it to form. Okay, And this sometimes happens uh, after fracture surgery, uh, particularly after head injuries and burns and things like that. And it can uh, produce bone where we don't want to be, and that can prevent motion. I actually just treated a young man with this problem. Uh, you can get what's called avascular necrosis of the femoral head. So if you look at the right femoral head and compare it to the left, you see all the little cysts uh, in the femoral head on the left. Okay, those aren't supposed to be there. That's because that femoral head is dying. And unfortunately, sometimes even if you do a beautiful surgery and the bone heals, the blood supply of the femoral head can be disrupted and that femoral head can melt away. We still don't have a great understanding of how this happens, and we certainly don't have a good understanding of how to treat it. You can injure one of the nerves uh, uh, around the hip. The most common one is probably the sciatic nerve, and that can lead to numbness and also weakness, uh, particularly with getting your uh, foot up off the ground, what we call a foot drop. You can get post-traumatic arthritis, which means the surgeon pieced everything back together, maybe even perfectly, but the cartilage in that joint goes on to degrade because there was an injury at the time um, uh, of the initial injury to the cartilage, and so that cartilage goes away, and people get arthritis, and that requires an arthroplasty. You can get a non-union, so this is when the bone doesn't heal. Again, everything may have gone perfectly in surgery, but the bones may just not heal, and a very typical example of this would be a femoral neck fracture, which is what you see treated uh, here with those screws. You can get a dislocation. Okay, again, uh, this is why I spoke about the difference between a hemiarthroplasty and a complete hip replacement. The rate of dislocation after a, a total hip replacement is higher than a partial hip replacement, a hemiarthroplasty, and that sometimes leads us to do a hemiarthroplasty because of this known risk. And then the one that's uh, our least favorite to deal with probably, which is infection. Okay, so anytime you put metal into the body, that metal lacks an immune system, and it's also a favorite place for bacteria to form and produce a slime, what we call glycocalyx, that is particularly difficult to get rid of with antibiotics. In fact, you can't get rid of it with antibiotics. Okay? And the rate of infection after these sort of uh, procedures is about 3 to 5%. Okay? So these are all things that can go wrong, all right? even uh, when you think everything's going right. So in summary, and then I'll uh, take some questions. So what's a hip fracture? It's not just one thing. Okay, it's a large group of diagnoses. It can involve the pelvis, it can involve the proximal femur, and unfortunately all of these uh, can have different natural histories, different treatments, different prognoses. Okay? So just because your, fen- your friend fell and broke their hip and got a hip replacement and your surgeon is suggesting that they fix yours, that doesn't mean that uh, someone got the uh, wool pull over their eyes. They're just a large group of problems. Despite that large group of problems, why we fix them is basically the same for everyone. We want to improve people's quantity and quality of life. Okay? And generally, the way we treat these things falls into one of two categories. We either do an internal fixation where we, where we try to get the bone to heal, or we get rid of the broken part and we do an arthroplasty. Or we're not trying to get bone to heal, we're trying to get an implant to grow into bone and last the, life, the lifespan of the patient. We choose between those two options by what we feel is the potential for fracture healing and also the weight-bearing needs of the patient. And unfortunately, the outcomes uh, for hip fractures um, 
are not as good as we would like, uh, even contemporarily. Um, if complications can be avoided, generally though, the risk of doing surgery is less than the risk of not doing surgery, which is why we recommend surgery in the overwhelming majority of patients. Okay? That's all the prepared stuff I have for you. Uh, we're both happy to take questions. Uh, the lady in the back who shot her hand up really quickly. So the question is uh, basically how does osteoporosis relate to our decision-making, um, whether we're going to fix it uh, or replace it, um, and also potential for healing. Uh, so first of all, just to state the obvious, if you have osteoporosis, um, your risk of fracture is higher. Okay, so if, you're, if your bone quantity and quality is poor, you're more likely to break your hip. Okay, just to put that out there. In terms of um, how it affects whether or not we're going to fix or not fix a fracture, um, in general, uh, it, it only affects my line of thought. Um, you know, it's, it's not as common as you would think, okay, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So uh, if you have an intertrochanteric fracture in the 22-year-old who fell off the motorcycle and an intertrochanteric fracture in the 89-year-old who fell off the rug, they both get fixed. Okay, and that's because osteoporosis itself does not necessarily lead to an inability to heal. It can make it more difficult for the implant to hold on long enough uh, for the bone to unite um, uh, uneventfully. Okay, uh, there are, and so because of that, the rate of failure fixation is undoubtedly higher given to two patients with uh, a similar injury but otherwise different bone quality, okay? But it doesn't mean that in an intertrochanteric fracture and someone with osteoporosis, I'm automatically going to go to an arthroplasty because the potential for healing is still high enough that we're going to try to maintain that patient's native anatomy, okay? Did I answer your question? Uh, other, other people? I think the guy in the red sweatshirt might have been next. Good question, yeah. So the, the question for the cameras is um, when we do an open external fixation, we put implants in there, the bone heals around it, and then the implants are just sitting there. So do we routinely schedule to take those out? And the answer is no. Uh, there are cases um, where there can be hardware that can be problematic uh, in people's bodies. So, for example, hardware around the elbow, uh, around the, the tip of your elbow, can be per particularly troublesome for some patients, and people will frequently want that out. The hip is not one of those places for, I would say, two reasons. Number one, even in the most uh, petite person, there's a lot of padding around the hip, so it's not too frequent that someone will actually feel their implant and be bothered by that. Number two, when you take out an implant, there's a hole there, okay, and that puts patients at risk for fracture. And so there's nothing like leaving a large hole in someone who just had a hip fracture. Uh, and I, I've actually personally treated several patients like that who've had implants removed and then almost immediately refractured and required uh, fixation again. So because of that, uh, it's a rare circumstance in, for a hip surgery that I'd recommend routine removal. Yep. Good question. So the question is, is acupuncture used uh, after surgery for, you know, pain relief, let's say? Um, so the first thing I'll say is I personally don't have a lot of experience with that, um, and I'm unaware of the data surrounding that. However, it's absolutely not dangerous, and if someone has a good experience with it previously for pain, let's say they're going for back pain or whatever else, and they want to use it postoperatively, I personally would have no problem with that. So it's not dangerous. If you find it beneficial, more power to you. Yeah, that'd be fine.
the question that you uh, stated in, in its essence was uh, when you fix a fracture, it's not like you're just staring at a bone. There's muscle, cartilage, and all sorts of things around that. And so um, you have to move those structures out of the way. And can't you, don't, can't, isn't there the risk of damaging those structures as you're doing it? Okay, and the specific um, example you gave was the femoral head fracture. Uh, and you are exactly correct that in order to fix a femoral head fracture the way that I showed it, it requires dislocating the hip, fixing the femoral head, uh, and then putting that thing back into the socket. And that is not a procedure for beginners. Uh, so it requires a very large dissection, in fact, a significantly larger dissection that would be required for a hip replacement, believe it or not. And there are serious risks to the blood supply to the femoral head, which already has a problem with blood supply because it's broken. Uh, so yes, the, the risk of avascular necrosis to the femoral head dying is, is high in that procedure, particularly if you don't know how to do the dissection safely. If you know how to do the dissection safely, it's still probably the best option in a young person who you're trying to have a hip for their lifetime. Um, but yes, the, the big thing uh, that uh, you spend uh, years trying to figure out how to do is how to get to all these bones safely. Uh, and respect the soft tissue. Yeah, absolutely. It's a big part of it. Another very good question. So the specific question was, are there muscles cut during surgery? Um, and the answer is, in order to get down to a bone, we always have to do one of two things or both. We either have to go th between two muscles, okay, what we call an intramuscular plane. Uh, and ideally, that's not only an intramuscular plane, it's an internervous plane. So you go in between two muscles that are innervated by different nerves. That way, when you separate them apart, you're not damaging the nerve supply to either one. However, that's not always an option, uh, and sometimes you do have to split a muscle. When we split a muscle, what we try to do is, again, um, know some of the details about it, their innervation to help uh, maintain that. Uh, and we also do it in such a way that we would do it in line with the muscle itself, um, such that we're not transecting it, we're longitudinally dividing it and pulling it apart. But yes, um, there is, there's no magical way to get down to the deepest structures in the body. You do have to either move muscle uh, out of the way or split it. Yeah, and that, of course, has to recover also. I think we'll call it. Thank you guys for your attention and your wonderful questions this evening. Um, this will uh, end our formal program. If you want to catch myself or Dr. Tugut on our way out of here um, with more questions, we're happy to take them offline. Okay, thanks. Have a good evening. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.